Hi everyone, I'm Patrick Johnson. And I'm Chante Westmoreland. And this is Do You Even Have a Tech Degree? Hey everybody, thanks for joining us. Uh, today we are speaking to Ted Bontemps. Uh, he's a partner at Cooley. Um, he does strategic brand management. And uh, we were lucky enough to grab him right after the lunch talk that he gave for the uh, Berkeley Center for Law and Technology, who puts on these great lunches for students on uh, Tuesdays and Thursdays. Um, Todd gave a lunch talk about, uh, that he, well, he called it Chewing Virtuous Chicken, um, which was um, mainly about international trademark issues. So a, uh, a trademark is a word or a name or a symbol, it can even be a color, um, that's used to somehow identify the source of a good or service. Um, so Todd kind of talks about um, the implications that uh, the meaning behind certain names or symbols might have uh, for American companies who are wishing to do business abroad or vice versa. So now I'm going to turn it over to Todd, who started off by telling us about what exactly his department at Cooley encounters uh, in their day-to-day -day work. As the name implies, we do a lot of trademark work, copyright issues, um, com comparative advertising issues, but pretty much anything that comes across my desk is going to involve either a startup brand or an existing um, multinational company brand, be it um, choosing a new name for product, um, launching a new subsidiary overseas and, and wanting a you know, Chinese character name or something to that extent too. Uh, trademark enforcement, so defending um, marks. Uh, I, I work a lot with uh, foreign counsel, obviously, and we, our clients are, are all over the world. Right. Uh, I do a fair amount of trademark licensing work. Um, and then just the, kind of the general prosecution of searching and and uh, filing trademarks, right. w which I talked about today. Right, okay. Yeah. And so to be clear, for people who might be new to law school or new to the legal field, that would mean that you work on the transactional as opposed to the litigation side, is that correct? Yeah, I do both. Um, okay. So my practice is, it's, it's close, but it's fair to say 50% of my work, I'm dealing with litigators, okay. adversarial enforcement fights, okay. and the other 50% are non-adversarial, commercial transaction, licensing issues, um, merger and acquisition, IP due diligence. So I like it because um, although I was trained as a litigator, mm -hmm. um, if I had my druthers, I, I would do more strategic brand counseling and licensing mm -hmm. than trial room stuff. Okay. Um, so I like it. It's, it. For me, it's the best of both worlds. I, I deal specifically with the business startup folks mm -hmm. and the VC types, as well as the two kind of IP litigators who were getting ready for trial. Sure, sure. Okay. So during um, during your lunch talk, you mentioned that um, you often work with, uh, or you might work with, uh, market research advisors and things like that. How often does, and what con in what context does that sort of uh, thing come up? Um, I mean, just uh, I I have some tiny tiny clients that are literally two person startups, and then I've got really large multinational corporations. Mm -hmm. So. Um, my typical liaison is either co-founders of startups, right, who don't have 
a GC, a general counsel, or they don't have a VP of marketing. Um, so I'll deal directly with executives um, all the way up. So the larger companies that have the general counsel, mm-hmm. um, he or she will usually be my first point of contact. Okay. Um, if the company has a VP of marketing, um, I'll do a lot of work with the VP of marketing. And if the larger companies, I'll deal directly with the product managers. Great. So if you can envision uh, a company that has you know, five separate product lines, mm-hmm. it's not unusual, there'll be a product manager for each of those lines. Each time they want to come up with an advertising tagline or a new slogan or a new graphic mm-hmm. um, or a new product name, um, that's usually the hierarchy. Mm-hmm. I'll deal directly with them, and then they're overseen by the VP of marketing, and then that person's overseen by the executive. So depending on the size of the company, mm-hmm. I'll usually work directly with one of those three okay. contacts, which makes it fun. Right. Yeah. So. So I do, I do get a lot of exposure to the marketing folks mm-hmm. um, or the executives who want to be marketing folks mm-hmm. or are marketing folks out of necessity, right. which can sometimes be dangerous. Um, your question about kind of market research and outside stuff, typically the, the lo- some of the larger companies, um, that's where I get involved. So they'll go, there are uh, like naming companies out there mm-hmm. that they'll outsource that to and say, I have a new... Um, we're designing a new car for Honda and we need a new name. Mm-hmm. It's not unusual, um, obviously, you know, big, big marketing budget. It's not unusual to actually have them hire a naming firm okay. to come up with, again, what's their message, what's their demographic. Um, and I've sat through several of those um, situations, which are very, very interesting. Mm-hmm. If, if you can imagine uh, a room like this, mm-hmm. um, both walls are covered with yellow post-its, right, right? with like concepts, yeah, yeah. and people wringing other people's throats because, you know, it gets very fluffy, right? I want to be tertiary and be grounded, and you want, you're in the heavenly section, and you want to go for the cloud name. People get very, very emotional uh, about their brands. So I I will deal with the naming folks, Mm -hmm. but more often than not, um, I will get involved after the naming folks have left. And have usually, it's not unusual for the namers to say, look, we started with 130 names. And when they're done, they'll give you 15 names. Right. So those 15 names, then you go to the law firm and say, okay, we want to check to see if it's available for registration. We want to check to see what kind of risk abuse issues are out there. We want to check to see what kind of cultural or language problems. Um, that's usually where I would get involved. So I might have some contact with the naming people, but more often than not, um, they'll kind of do their thing, whittle it down, and then we'll get to the legal analysis. Okay, and how often do clients um, sort of know these issues, the three issues that you named? Like how often do they automatically know those and come to you, and how often do they come to you with just like, we have this idea, can you help us get this off the ground? Right, that's a great question. I mean, um, obviously it just depends on their background, but. If I could just generalize, mm-hmm. the smaller the company, the less they know. Right. right? Okay. So in my world, um, I do a lot of work in the Silicon Valley high-tech area. Um, it's not unusual at all to say, look, uh, we're the brains behind this technology or the code or the app or whatever. Very, very focused on the know-how and the patents. Mm-hmm. Um, no knowledge whatsoever about branding or trademarks. Because at the end of the day, um, I think the vision is usually twofold, right? I either want to take this public and make it the greatest thing 
since sliced bread mm -hmm. on Facebook. Or I want to tee this up for someone to come along like a Facebook and buy me. Mm -hmm. And then I'll start over and do the same thing. Um, how important is the brand? I mean, the secret sauce is really the technology and the patent, right? Right. Well, sometimes, right? It depends. Some industries, the brand's very, very important. Mm -hmm. um, the VCs and the investors, the brand could be crucial. If you're, if you're an online type app, it could make or break you. Right. Like people don't like the name, people can't find you, you're relying on the word of mouth and people can't remember how to spell it or whatever. Right. You're dead. Um, if it really is the widget or the hardware mm -hmm. or the innards, like a particular circuit or chip inside something that you're never going to see, mm -hmm. the name may not be important at all. Right. But um, every now and then I get surprised. I'll have a startup person who's who's pretty hip on the marketing stuff. Okay. I would say um, nine times out of ten. Um, the talk I gave today, they would love to sit down on. Right. Because it's the first time they've really sat down and thought about things like, that's interesting because China and Japan are going to be really important for my market. And it never occurred to me that this word doesn't work there. Right. Or might have a negative connotation. Or... Really? I have to come up with Chinese characters to register my name in China? Right. In addition, right? Probably the first time they've ever heard those types of things. Absolutely. So yeah. you gave an example um, earlier today during your lunch talk uh, that was sort of dealing with uh, Polo Ralph Lauren and how they were going to enter the Chinese market. Can right. you kind of re retell that story? And yeah, it's, it's just a great example of um, the people at Ralph Lauren had clearly done their market research to know that they had to get into China. Mm -hmm. um, you know, J Japan, not surprisingly, years ago, decades ago, uh, when Rolex moved in and these other luxury goods, goods have been highly, highly successful. China's obviously been a little slower. Uh, just, it's, it's a much different market, obviously. But now um, U.S. and the rest of the world are realizing there's this tremendous opportunity, lots and lots of consumers in China. Mm -hmm. Um, who loved the luxury market. So when Ralph Lauren decided to go, I think they, they picked probably four or five top cities and decided to launch, decided on the look. And the, and the issue I touched on was, um, aside from the phonemes issue, right, um, where we, we run into, and this is another talk I have with startup folks about, just because it works here and we can say it here, mm -hmm. right, there's lots of phonemes and syllables in Chinese, that don't work with our mouths or our ears, right? Or we try to say it and we're getting in trouble because mm -hmm. you know you go up instead of down in your intonation and you're changing the, 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 entire, the entire word or the concept. So the, the issue there was not only was it Polo by Ralph Lauren, which is a mouthful, mm -hmm. um, but it was also, um, will this work, right? It's worked great in Europe, it's worked great in the US. And I think you always have that danger um, what, and what I touched on was not only just a language, but a cultural issue. And the sample there, uh, the example I gave there was the, uh, unlike a lot of stories that you hear, oh, it just was a disaster. The name was horrible, no one wanted it, no one bought it. Here it was absolutely opposite. Everyone wanted it, and they had to double their efforts to keep the, to keep the polo shirts on the shelves. The problem was the name meant nothing, and, and the, the immediate demographic consumer um, couldn't handle the name. So instead of asking for Polo by name, it just became the three-legged horse brand. Right. Right. And the, and the, 
the classic story was the you know stereotypical housewife coming in saying, my husband wants these shirts in all of your colors. You know, I'll take 10 of them. And the salesperson going, oh, fantastic, right? right? That's a great, great customer. And which one do you have your eye on? And she would ask it f- as, I want the three-legged horse. 10 of the three-legged horse? That's the only brand sure my is. husband will wear, right? right? So the issue there was um, not necessarily a negative in that it was offensive or, you know, sounded like a swear word or something. Um, but the issue that we touched on today was there's an opportunity to control your brand before it launches in the market or let it ride and see what happens. Mm-hmm. And this was a situation where the consumers are going to ask for it. It's just a question of, did you give me the handles to grab or should I name it something else? Right. And in this situation, at least initially, people were just um, couldn't get enough of the three-legged horse. And when that gets back to headquarters, they say, hey, how are sales going? And go, well, it's a good news, bad news, right? <laughs> right. Um, and, and I think people could really relate to, because we had a pretty pretty diverse international crowd, everyone started laughing when they envisioned their picture in their mind of a three-legged horse just falling over, or particularly a guy trying to play polo right. on the back of a three-legged <laughs> horse. It's just not a great image in a highly competitive luxury market exactly. where you have a rider lying underneath a horse and he can't get up. Right. Yeah. <laughs> So you mentioned that, of course, that's not necessarily considered disparaging or insulting in any way. I mean, perhaps to maybe a three-legged horse, it might be a little insulting. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, the point, the point being um, we're all consumers at a very basic level. Right. And so I think we can all relate to that. If I want that, I really love that sweater you're wearing, and I want to get a sweater like that. Mm-hmm. Right? i got to call it something. Yes. And if I can't pronounce it mm-hmm. or I can't remember it or you told me what it was, but it doesn't make any sense to me. Mm-hmm. I'm going to call it something that does relate to. Right. right? And, and, the, and the issue was, look, at a very basic level, you look at the little icon on the shirt. Mm-hmm. And obviously, you know, it gets so small with all the stitching. Right. It's really, really hard to see that fourth <laughs> leg in there. That, that's how it came to, came to be. Exactly. Right. But from a marketing standpoint, there's an important lesson there mm-hmm. to say, uh, look, we can't anticipate everything that's going to happen. Um, but was there an opportunity kind of pre-launch where we maybe should have seen that coming? Mm -hmm. Can people pronounce it? Can they remember it? Can they spell it? Are there characters that go with it? Right. 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 So the Supreme Court is currently, or currently has on their docket, um, a couple of what could be characterized as disparaging trademark cases. One of them would be the Asian American band, the Slants. The The other would be the Washington Redskins, which has been passed around for years. Um, so can you talk a little bit about, one, what a disparaging trademark is, two, what law governs them, and three, um, how these considerations might affect how you would advise a business or a client? Yeah, it's a, it's a really interesting area because I think, um, like it or not, um, it's a moving target and it's a moving definition. Um, so whether you're talking about hip-hop music or things written across people's t-shirts or whatever, mm-hmm. um, 20 years ago, that answer is probably different than what's disparaging than what's was disparaging yesterday. Right. right? So, so that's tough. Um, so at a very basic level, um, and we're talking about, we touched on this briefly in the talk, um, the world's kind of divided into two trademark areas, right? One is a first-to-use jurisdiction and one is a first-to-file. Mm-hmm. When we talk about registering a trademark, um, Many, but not all, but many 
um, trademark statutes throughout the world will have something that specifically addresses disparaging offensive trademarks are not registrable. Um, now, some of them get even more precise. For example, um, you can't make fun of the queen, right? Or you can't use coat of arms or national flags or something because one, it could be disrespectful, but two, it's a suggestion that there's some affiliation or sponsorship with those governmental or royal family entities, right? right? So the disparaging ones is essentially, um, to, to, to be fair, right? As practitioners, more often than not, we are addressing brand owners' rights. Mm -hmm. The reality is, from, from a very basic concept, that this is not really brand owner protection law. Right? The Lanham Act is consumer protection law. Mm -hmm. So those disparaging um, prohibitions are really there for the protection of the consumer. Absolutely. Right? Um, and whatever it is, I, I'm bringing my daughter in um, through Target, and there's a bunch of T-shirts on display, and they have... Um, you know, swear words or really graphic, violent, you know, picture of someone with their head cut off, right? Mm -hmm. I don't want her exposed to those types of, it's consumer protection, right? right? So from a very basic level, you will find uh, multiple statutes uh, across, across the world that prohibit disparaging or offensive, mm -hmm. right? What's difficult, and uh, that's why I'm, I'm very intrigued with these particular cases, is I think that line moves. Right? right. Say it's the classic um, case about pornography, where you say, you know, I'm not not sure how to define it, but I sure know it when I see it. Right. Um, were those lyrics in that song offensive ten years ago? Oh, absolutely. I mean, we were putting stickers on it. How did that go? Didn't go well. More people bought it with right. the stickers, right? Um, so the issue here, as you know, is well, it doubled down. Because now the person trying to register the rights and get a monopoly, if you will, on the slants um, is of Asian descent. He says there's nothing disparaging about it. He's right. kind of, um, I don't want to say accepting, but he is saying, okay, you're going to put me under this umbrella and I'm going to prove that it can be a really positive thing. Mm -hmm. That's my heritage. That's my, that's my ancestry. Mm -hmm. um, I, and I think he's gone on the record on this uh, publicly in, in interviews that I've seen. It says it's not disparaging. Mm -hmm. And if anyone should know what's disparaging mm -hmm. about my Asian ancestry, it's me. <laughs> Thank you very much. Right. Right. Um, so that's a, that's an interesting issue. Um, I think the Redskins um, they want to pull that in because mm -hmm. that's been around for for many many years. And I, I would like them to kind of keep that one on there because mm -hmm. we've been kind of waiting, waiting, hoping right. for a decision on that Absolutely. for many years. Um, slightly different though, right? Mm -hmm. Because that's not the owner of the Redskins saying, excuse me, I am of Indian or early American descent mm -hmm. and I don't find this disparaging, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. um, so, so coming at it from very, very different directions. Right. I think the slants one is... Um, is ripe, however, because it is the applicant right. seeking the registration who is the first to accept that he is, in fact, part of that defined term. Absolutely. And so that he's being sincere about it, saying it's not derogatory. Right. And the Supreme Court, 
the Supreme Court's going to tell me that it is. Mm-hmm. I know what I feel. Yeah. I know I've been Asian my entire life. Right. It isn't. Right. So it's a very, very interesting issues. Absolutely. Yeah. It'll be very interesting to see how they how they come down on that one. And these things, they change, um, as you mentioned, not only over time, but also over space. And for example, you wrote a paper in 2002 about talking about um, color Mm -hmm. as a trademark and how that uh, certain colors signify different things in different places. Can you talk a little bit about your experience with that? Yeah, we had a a great question actually during the talk about um, uh, how effective color could be in marketing. Mm -hmm. And and my comment was, um, I think it's one of those things where it crosses all divides. Um, you, you don't need to know anything about the language of the country you're visiting or the product you're purchasing. You have no idea what's on but there's that immediate kind of color combination or, you know, websites are the same way. Mm-hmm. Um, how does it strike you? Is it bold? Is it boring? Is it, right? And then as you get into that next level of cultural customs, recalling things from your childhood, um, even certain holidays, mm-hmm. if you think about it, um, orange and black, right? If you just sat down with American school kids and said, hey, let's talk about holidays, orange and black, red and green, right? right? Um, these are powerful, powerful marketing messages, mm-hmm. right? Uh, and so the examples we use today um, about packaging color, trade dress, other competitors getting close, right? It's no coincidence that certain colors are chosen and certain colors are left off. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so, so it's interesting when you cross the divide, right, and you look at other um, color combinations, some of them can be quite odd right. from Western eyes and ears, right? Uh, so the specific question were, you know, were you aware of, of situations where that could be the death knell? Mm-hmm. And absolutely. Um, I think it's harder to find on the service side as, as in products. Um, but the, the one I mentioned was um, years ago we did run across... Um, primarily black gas station get-ups mm-hmm. in the Middle East, mm-hmm. where it was it was just found to be demonic. Actually, right. okay. people didn't black. want devils to serve you know, fill their tanks of gas. Right. Um, so certain colors that may not be offensive to certain cultures mm-hmm. um, just have different meanings, mm-hmm. um, which it would, which is really fascinating. Right. Um, and so when you start playing with that, uh, oftentimes you know packaging color website color, colors used in ads, filters used in commercials mm-hmm. can be very, very effective of having people remember things or associating your products or services with some, some fond memory or right. something. If it brings up a negative connotation or a negative memory, right, it can right. be very, very, very detrimental for are you going to go out and buy it or are you going to tell other people about it? Absolutely. Yeah, so, so, so color can be... Um, very, very effective. Um, the The example that I gave is when I worked in-house with BP. Um, they spent a lot of money trying to protect the color green per se, mm-hmm. um, just for gas stations. Um, so, I, so it was just fascinating to see um, you know, certain countries are more, more prone to allow that mm-hmm. than others. And when um, I think of green, I think of environmental... Uh, natural thing. So, what was sort of BP's motivation between trying to? Well, BP's always been green since right. day one. But that's an interesting point you raised because um, if they had their druthers, they wanted BP hoses to be green. Right. And they found that the world was saying, "Well, wait a minute, no, 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 diesel, right? Mm-hmm. If you go here in the U.S., the diesel pumps are green, right? To distinguish them, right? In some parts of Europe, the unleaded hose 
was green. Oh, wow. No lead, and uh-huh. the others were black or whatever. Right. And I remember some of my counterparts at BP jumping up and down and saying, well, wait a minute, that BP, and they lost that fight. Because yeah. she's like, look, that's, remember we talked about generic to merely descriptive. Absolutely. So to the extent that a color now represents something descriptively or generically, mm-hmm. you lost it. Absolutely. Yeah, so they lost the hose fight. But they actually, they actually did very well on the overall station getup. You right. know, the panels and the, and the, and the pumps themselves. Um, so there's, there's some very interesting color companies that I think have been very, very effective mm-hmm. in that. Um, Cadbury, for example, if you're a chocolate fan. Um, Cadbury has purple on every single product wrapper, except right. for one. Um, and that's just their look, their mm-hmm. thing. People recognize Cadbury Purple, mm-hmm. right? The one I mentioned, Deutsche Telekom. I've always had that magenta here in the U.S., mm-hmm. the T-Mobile, the pink tea. Mm-hmm. Um, just to the nth degree till you're sick of it, right? right? That's their culture. Their ads are bright pink. The websites are bright, bright pink. Their sponsorships, like the, the uh, Tour de France riders, obnoxious pink. <laughs> but that's right. their color. Right. And they've done an incredibly effective job of having color as a source identifier. So people don't recognize it just as, oh, it's aesthetics. It's, it's oh, it's T-Mobile. Right. It's Deutsche Telekom. And sort of the last thing um, I wanted to talk about, you mentioned it already, um, as well as discussing it in your talk, the, um, the trademark distinctiveness spectrum. So um, the, the slide I just showed, uh, if you can visualize a spectrum, right, mm-hmm. left to right, on one end is what we call generic. Um, and on the other end is what we just call fanciful and arbitrary. Mm -hmm. So there's this constant kind of tug and pull between legal teams and marketing teams about this product name or this new company name, where are we going to fall Mm -hmm. onto this? And the reason it's important is from a legal enforcement standpoint, you want to try to get um, brand owners up towards the fanciful or suggestive or at best may be descriptive, mm-hmm. right? So you want to kind of push them to the middle or the far left towards fanciful. Right. Because those are inherently distinctive and readily enforceable, mm-hmm. right? So if I come out with a name like Google, say, well, I don't even know what a Google is, even better, because let me educate you what they do, right. right? Now I've got an inherently distinctive trademark that if someone comes out with Schmoogle mm-hmm. and they're in the online search business, I can say, with a straight face. The only reason you chose Schmoogle is because I'm Google and you're trying to confuse people into thinking there's some association or that I'm affiliated with you or mm-hmm. I'm the whatever, this is the Australian version of Google and we call it Schmoogle or what have you. Mm-hmm. That's an infringement. Absolutely. Okay. So the, the issue I touched at uh, during the talk was generic really shouldn't be on there because it's not a mark but we kind of put that as the extreme, right? Mm-hmm. Really, that first category is merely descriptive. Mm-hmm. And so if you apply to register a mark that describes an ingredient or a purpose or a feature of your product, mm-hmm. um, so uh, I'm, I want to register my name for a, uh, a drug um, that helps me breathe when I get congestion in my nose. Mm-hmm. It's called Breathe Easy. Breathe Easy. Mm-hmm. It's perfect. People know exactly what it does. Right. It helps you breathe easy, right? The USPTO is going to look at that and say, look, regardless of how clever you are about spelling easy and all that kind of stuff, 
I view that, again, consumer protection standpoint, as breathe easy. Mm-hmm. Is that a purpose or a feature of your product? Will this help people breathe easier? And the answer is yes. You'll get what's called a merely descriptiveness objection mm-hmm. and say, you can't register this because you're really trying to monopolize, if you will, that phrase in connection with that. And why isn't that fair? Because consumers should be allowed to look at competitive products. And a competitive product who is selling uh, a a brand of a very similar uh, drug called XYZ should be able to say, helps you breathe easy, or helps you breathe easier, right? Mm -hmm. And in the world where I say, look, I got to file it first and I got it, you say, you can't say breathe easy on your label. That's my mark. You need a license from me, right? So the, the tug I'm talking about is marketers love it because you pick it up off the shelf and you go, this is what I need. I've got a head cold and I need to breathe easy. I'll take it. Marketing is done, right? right? What they don't like about that is the legal department will come back and say, I can't protect that. I can't stop other people from saying breathe easy, right. um, even if they spell it differently, right? Um, so on that spectrum of merely descriptive, Right? Great from a marketing standpoint, difficult to enforce. As you get up to suggestive, mm-hmm. and suggestive marks are those that suggest to your relevant consumer base that feature. So I want to suggest breathing easy without saying breathing easy. Right. Right? Or I want to I suggest, um, the example I, I mentioned was fast software. You know, it's, it's really fast, it's faster than about it. Let's just call it fast. Can't trademark that. What if I called it diamond lane? Why would you, you know, because I can go to the left and just pass all my competitors, or it's so much quicker and so much more efficient, right? Ah, so legal people are like, nice, much better, right? Harder, harder mark to think of, diamond lane, than fast. But on that spectrum, now we're getting from merely descriptive fast to suggestive diamond lane. Now, you need to educate your base to go, like, you know what a diamond lane is, right? If they don't, you've got to tell them. You know, you know, get it? Like, I'm passing everyone and I don't have to wait. The, yeah, right. Right. Um, and then, at the, and the, and so, so those are the ones that I was harping on. You know, mm-hmm. try to get that marketing department, try to get that startup in the suggestive one. Or go to the far left, and that would be arbitrary or fanciful. Mm-hmm. So arbitrary is choosing a real word in the dictionary and just applying it to something else, mm-hmm. like Apple for computer. Right. Um, and fanciful is just kind of making up an, uh, a word like haagen and just saying, that's for ice cream. What does it mean? It doesn't mean anything. It's just, it's just arbitrary. So legal get, people love that, right? Marketing people hate it because right. you say, well, what the heck's a Hagen does? Now you have a big hill to climb there to educate your demographic why they should buy Hagen does ice cream rather than dryers or, or whatever, right. right? So there's this constant tug. And so, so what I was trying to suggest is you know, you can't dictate what your clients are going to call their products, but if they're starting at ground zero and you can get them to kind of meet you halfway, know the engineers and the marketing people are going to want merely descriptive and know that the legal and execs understand the importance of the fanciful and arbitrary, kind of meet halfway into that suggestion. Right. <laughs> Easier said than done. Exactly. Yes, yeah. of course. Yeah. So aspirin. Um, right. You said that that was once a name like the product name and it actually transformed into a generic term correct so at at one time bear had registered aspirin um as a trademark 
I would say all over the world, but in certain dozens and dozens of countries mm -hmm. of the world. And I believe um, it's still a registered trademark in Canada. Okay. And I think that's the only place it's registered. I may be wrong, but um, at least in the primary uh, trademark German jurisdictions, the mark is deemed to have died. And um, so in, in my world, we called it genericide. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> the trademark, unfortunately, met a, a sad ending and became a generic term. So the, the classic genericide um, examples are thermos, escalator, uh, aspirin. These were all once brand names, right? Mm -hmm. The escalator moving staircase. Right. And people were, after a while just said, hey, you know, I'll just take the escalator. Right. Um, and, and marks that we run across every day, mm -hmm. like a Xerox uh, printing machine or Kleenex facial tissue. Right. And do we really say I'm gonna have to go buy facial tissue? Um, there's an interesting dynamic now there right. because those uh, Kimberly Clarks of the world and the Xeroxes of the world, you know, they I'm sure you've seen the ads. They spend a lot of money educating for enforcement purposes. Hey, by the way, right? We're we're an adjective. We're modify right. a noun. We're not a verb. We're not a thing. We're not the thing itself. That is tried to keep it away from the genericide, aspirin, and right. thermos and escalator um, deaths. Uh, but I think there's a legitimate question there, right? I mean, I certainly people on my floor of the office use Xerox generically. Right. They use Kleenex generically right. for years. Um, but that, but that was that's the original concern. Right. Um, and I think the classic one is usually, uh, oh, don't don't have this turn into an aspirin. Where, um, and, and and to be honest, um, it means the marketing work. Yeah, they were. Yeah, they were so successful, and they had a unique product, mm -hmm. essentially initially, with no competitors. Mm -hmm. That was their that was their downfall, which shouldn't shouldn't be anything a fault of their own, right? right? But when that is the only thing, and you need aspirin to get rid of your headache, that's you just start calling it. And then when there is competition, and there now there is a market, if uh, we talked about control of the consumer, right, mm -hmm. with the three-legged horse, if everyone just refers to it as aspirin, regardless of who manufactures it. You, you have a, a risk there of losing your entire brand. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. Don't feel too sorry for, for Bear RD. <laughs> I think they've done, they've done pretty well. It yeah. seems it's like, yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they don't need my pity. Yeah. Um, so I guess last, what do you consider tech law? Like what would be your definition of tech law? I think the big message is um, it's getting harder and harder. I, I used to categorize my clients as high tech and no tech. No tech being, you know, my dog food clients, or um, I did a lot of work with um, alcohol industry mm -hmm. clients, and it's getting harder and harder to make that distinction, right? Right, because it's really hard now to have a product or a service that isn't touched mm -hmm. or influenced by tech, um, and I think that's a double-edged sword. In one way, for me, it's very exciting because if you really get, if you really wanted to get into high tech law, 25, 30 years ago. It was pretty specific, you know, very patenty, mm -hmm. uh, computer-based programming. Where is this going, right? Suddenly, digital music shows up, and you go, oh, I, got, "I think we got to throw music into high tech law, right?" Mm -hmm. And now you turn around, and it's like, "Okay, what isn't under that umbrella?" Right. Even even kind of alcohol manufacturing, um, apparel production, distribution, there's so much high tech involved in that now that if you're really into fashion, if you're really into the consumer and goods, right, high tech things, mm -hmm. 
be it application, uh, storage, data privacy issues, uh, you're going to be touched by high tech law. So it's one of those things we, we talked about disparaging um, the definition moving. This one I think is going to get kind of more more nebulous mm -hmm. by the month, mm -hmm. um, where you know it used to be there was a handful of industries that you say yeah that falls under high tech right that was the first question so are you in the software side or the hardware side I don't think you can ask that anymore right it's just mm -hmm. kind of like a, I don't care what you do if there's an e-commerce aspect if there's a laser printing aspect if there's some kind of storage and data or programming aspect to your business mm -hmm. you're probably being affected by high tech law issues absolutely yeah awesome well thank you so much oh my pleasure really appreciate it thanks for having me so thank you again to the Berkeley Center for Law and Technology for helping us set up this interview, as well as the Berkeley Technology Law Journal for its support of the podcast. Uh, thank you to all you listeners. Uh, I'm Chante Westmoreland, and we'll see you next time.